Well, guess where we're going tonight in our class? We're going into the Holy of Holies. All right. <laughs> How about that? And I have notes, and I hope I brought enough. Once again, you may have to share. By the way, did I leave my notes here last week? You didn't, um, you didn't find... Handwritten notes? Uh, no, or? notes with uh, yellow highlighter. If you want, yeah. I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I've got them on the computer. Those couples may just have to uh, share. Uh, I think I made twelve copies. This is chapter eight, and whether we'll get there tonight uh, is yet to be seen. But we are going to uh, do a little bit of a look into the tabernacle and the entering into the Holy of Holies. Uh, actually, that may... Where does that come along? Yeah, we'll get into chapter 8 and we'll get that. All right, did we have enough to go around? Pretty much. Hopefully, everybody got a copy. Um, so, we left off last time uh, about verse 18, 19. We're going to... Uh, I'm just going to touch on that again. Uh, as we move on. So let's once again do what we were just singing about and let's go into the Holy of Holies and just ask God's blessing again. We can never pray too much, Amen. particularly when it comes to the teaching and the hearing of God's Word. And So pray with me and we will get back into Hebrews 7. Our gracious Father, as we enter into the Holy of Holies, coming boldly because Christ is seated there at your right hand, knowing that he has sanctified us once for all, knowing that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and yet knowing that for the sake of fellowship, it is important for us to examine ourselves, to see if there's anything in our lives that is displeasing to you and a hindrance to others. And so we pray that just as we uh, bow before you now. We will each reflect on uh, our lives, our day, our, our past week. And should the Spirit of God bring anything into our mind by way of conviction, help us just be humble and submissive and confess that before you. Receive the cleansing that restores us to fellowship and therefore obedience and power uh, in our Christian life. Father, what a marvelous book as we open to the book of Hebrews a book that is so often uh, not studied because of the difficulties in it and a book that sometimes can lead to misunderstanding and a uh, little bit of confusion. And yet, Father, a book that is so absolutely rich with the truth of Christ and His glorification at Your right hand, His majesty, His ministry to us, His power. It is really the key to our spiritual life and growing to maturity. So, Father, as we open this book once again, may God the Holy Spirit have freedom yeah. to speak to us from your word and to draw us further along in our spiritual journey, closer and closer to you and closer to that day when we will stand in your presence once and for all. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's just do a little, real quick uh, review uh, of what we've seen in Hebrews up to this point. It's always good for us to keep things in line with uh, the flow of the book, the argument of the book, and 
He's about to remind us in chapter 8 of what his main argument is. But we've seen, beginning in chapter 1, that Jesus is greater than the prophets. And that's in the first three verses. And then we find throughout the rest of chapter 1 that he is greater than the angels. Uh, We might wonder why this would be a necessary argument, but to the Jews living at that time, uh, angels were held in very high regard. And they did a lot of speculation on angels. And so to prove that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the angels was very, very important. Then he takes a really big step in chapter 3 and tells them that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in the house, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the son who is the master over the house. And so that greatness, uh, of course, would have shaken probably many of the early recipients this letter. Then he goes into chapter 3 and he talks about the Exodus generation. And he uses this for two reasons. Number one, he wants to remind us that Jesus Christ is greater than Joshua. Joshua led the children of Israel in and they took control of the land. The Lord Jesus Christ is intending to lead us in victory into the promised land of our eternal rest. And he wants us to reach there the same way that the Exodus generation did. We have to take on the giants in our life. We have to act in faith and not in fear, and we have to be victorious by faith. Rest, the Canaan rest, only comes after victory. The second reason he wants to remind us of the Exodus generation is because they stand as a negative example to the recipients of the book. You remember they were always wanting to go back to Egypt, and it's the situation of many believers who come out of the world, they come to Christ in faith, and then... The old habits, the old addictions, the old lures begin to pull on them, and there's always a danger of them falling back. It would have been much harder for these recipients of this letter in the first century because they had left behind such a glorious heritage. They had the priesthood. They had the sacrificial system. They had the feast that they celebrated uh, yearly. They had the temple standing in Jerusalem and all of that tremendous heritage that they had, and the, the fact that they, all of them knew their lineage at this point, and they could follow their lineage all the way back because that was just so important to them. To tell these people now that all of that has been done away, and remember that when Christ was crucified and the veil was rent, that was God's sign that the way into the Holy of Holies, we were just singing about it, was thrown wide open to all who believe in Christ. It was also a sign that the sacrificial system was done. And the reason is because the perfect sacrifice had been offered. And that was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the author begins to develop in chapter 4 the ministry of our high priest. And he ends the chapter, you'll remember, by urging us to come boldly to the throne of grace reminding us that we don't need a human intermediary. We don't need a pope. We don't need a priest. We don't need a pastor. Every child of God by faith in Jesus Christ can boldly enter into the throne room because we know that Jesus Christ is there not with a judgmental attitude looking down on us or uh, looking to find fault with us. He is there with a merciful and a compassionate attitude to welcome us, to receive us, 
and to help us with whatever our needs may be. He builds that idea again in chapter 5. He talks about the high priest in the first 10 verses. He says, concerning him we have much to say, and it has become difficult because you are dull of hearing. And this I'll pick up uh, in a moment, just walking through the warning exhortations to the people. Then he moves along in chapter 6, and he reminds us that we have an anchor of our soul because God made a promise to Abraham and he sealed it with an oath. And that promise was that Abraham and his lineage would lead us to the Messiah and that the Messiah would, of course, be our Savior. So that leads us into chapter 7. Quickly touching on the warning sections, remember in chapter 2 he warns us of the danger of drifting away. The danger of drifting away uh, is, of course allowing the importance, the priority of God's word in our life to be replaced with other things. It happens in a very subtle way. It happens oftentimes without us realizing it until suddenly we are so far from where we were supposed to be. From chapter 2, he moves into chapter 3, and the warning is don't follow the Exodus generation. Don't be like them. Don't allow your doubts and your fears, don't allow the giants that you're facing to keep you from entering your promised land. Your promised land is whatever the plan of God has for you, and there are going to be giants in the way. You might as well realize that you're going to face them. There are going to be tests, there are going to be trials, there are going to be fears that we're going to face, and we have to face them in faith, and we have to overcome them. Then he goes from drifting away and being disobedient to the problem of dullness in chapter 5, and then from dullness in chapter 5, meaning that the Word of God has lost its appeal to them. How many times have we seen believers who start out and they're on fire and they're so excited, and then somewhere along the line that gradual drift sets in until they no longer have that excitement about the Word of God. And, uh, of course, that leads to the next warning in chapter 6, the danger of falling away. The idea of falling away in chapter 6 is misunderstood by a lot of people. Uh, they take the idea of falling from grace uh, as either loss of salvation or the fact that you were never saved. Actually, the word falling away was a theatrical term. Uh, it was used of people. You'll know, of course, that during the... Uh, Greco-Roman world, theater was very important, and it had become important in Jerusalem as well. As a matter of fact, we've been to the uh, amphitheater there in Jerusalem where they would actually put on a lot of the plays and a lot of the Hellenists, which were the uh, Greek-oriented Jews, enjoyed going and watching the plays and, and observing them and so on and so forth. Well, there was a term that was used, if you came out on the stage and you forgot your lines, or you failed to play your part, the crowd would begin to chant, ekpipto, 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 which is translated in our Bible to fall away. But the idea is you're not playing the part God designed you to play. You have fallen by the wayside, you've stumbled, uh, you're, you're off the track, you're in the ditch, you need to get back up and get on the track and begin playing the part that you should play. So all of this kind of brings us up to chapter 7, and just a quick recap, I'm doing this because sometimes one or the other of us is not here, 
and I think it's good for us to get the, the flow of the book uh, in our mind. In chapter 7, up to verse 18 and 19, which I'll briefly touch on, here's what we've seen. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. We know that from several reasons. Uh, the fact that he blessed Abraham, uh, the fact that he brought him uh, uh, the bread and the wine, which I can't help but believe was an anticipation of the Lord's table. Uh, Abraham submitted to him and gave him a tithe. So Abraham is greater than, or Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. By implication, that means that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Levi. The author is using a lot of uh, the exegetical methods that the ancient rabbis used. Uh, you're all aware, of course, that I believe Paul to be the author of the book. Um, I don't argue it. If people believe someone else, that's fine. But we do know that Paul was trained as a rabbi. And we know that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, considered one of the greatest teachers in centuries of uh, Jewish rabbinical training. And we also know that Paul was his star student uh, because he tells us that he had advanced beyond his contemporaries in many, many ways. So all of this rabbinical thinking may be a little bit difficult for us to grasp, but to the Jews that were reading this letter, it would be very, very simple. It's one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews is difficult for modern readers to really get a handle on. So I'm trying to make it as simple as I can, but please, if at any time there's something not clear, I don't mind at all if you shoot your hand up and we'll deal with whatever the question may be. Follow me along then on three lines. Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. The Levitical priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. And Jesus Christ is greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest. Jesus Christ is the high priest. As I said earlier, when we first looked at Melchizedek, there are many that believe Melchizedek to be a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. It's not a point that I would ever argue with people. I fully understand why many hold to that position. Uh, I'm inclined to think not, but like I say, ultimately it doesn't make any difference. Uh, it's not because we're not clearly told, are we? Um, if, if there's something in Scripture that's clearly stated, we might cross swords on that one. But when there, it's kind of left open uh, and there are differences, we just say, uh, God be with you and uh, God bless you and we get in his presence, we may both get corrected, right? So we don't make it a point of contention. Again, the, the author's building an argument because now we're getting to the main point of the book. Remember that chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 are all about what? The high priesthood of Jesus Christ. His high priesthood's been anticipated, it's been mentioned, now we are in the thick of it. Now we are in the briar patch, so to speak, and we're really getting into the thrust of this letter. I just want to touch on verse 18 and 19 where he says, On the one hand, there is an annulling of a former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. And I should add this, because of the change of priesthood, there has to be a change of covenant. Therefore, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. You know, I find this uh, a little bit strange. 
We're living in a generation when there are many, many people going back to the practices of Judaism, Christians. Uh, they call it the Hebrew Roots Movement. They want to try to talk in Hebrew. They want to celebrate all of the uh, festivals, which you really can't do. Apparently, they don't stop and think about this. Every single festival had a Sabbath, and that Sabbath had to be kept. And along with the uh, ceremony were sacrifices that had to be offered. We've got no sacrifices anymore. And the reason, of course, is because that whole system has been set aside. Notice the word here in verse 18. On the one hand, there is an annulling. The word to annul is a word that uh, means to set aside. The author actually speaks of this in three different passages, three different ways. If you would, just turn with me. We have annulling here in verse 18. Turn to 8.13. In that he says, a new covenant he makes the first obsolete. The word annulling is actually a legal term that talks about the neutralization of a contract. You have a contract, and that contract is being neutralized. Here, the word obsolete refers to something whose time has come, it's, it's fulfilled its purpose, and it's no longer of any value. So it's obsolete. And then if you'll just look at chapter 10 and verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is the Lord Jesus. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. What is the first? Obviously the first covenant. The second, of course, being the new covenant. You'll remember that one of the things Jesus said to the people of his day when they had such a difficulty understanding why are you doing things different than the priests? Why are you doing things different than our whole heritage tells us is to be done? And of course, when he would violate the Sabbath, please understand he was not violating the Sabbath as God gave it. Not at all. Not in any way would he violate the law in the tiniest way or, or fashion. What he was doing was violating their man-made rules about the Sabbath which turned people into slaves instead of the Sabbath being a joyful day of rest and joyful time with friends, it had turned into a miserable day. All right, so why would we want to go back to a system that obviously was set aside by God? I'm not opposed to the celebration of the feasts when we look at them and say, this feast pointed to this. I'm all for that. Uh, over in Australia, a lot of times our daughter and son-in-law and their family uh, will celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they will go out and they will set up little tents and they will talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and they'll tell the kids what it's all about and how it points to its fulfillment in Christ. That's the key. To celebrate in that way, I have no problem with. But I do not understand Christians wearing tassels uh, I don't understand them keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was when God's work was finished. The resurrection is when God's new work began. Why would you want to celebrate the old finished work and not the new work that's just beginning, the new creation, if you will? So you understand then that three times in the book of Hebrews it talks about the setting aside 
of the old covenant. And he tells us in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. In other words, it brought nothing to completion or fulfillment. Remember that the word perfect that's used in the book of Hebrews, used a number of times, never refers to sinless perfection. It's always talking about completing the set goal or the set objective. Jesus Christ is said to have been made perfect by his resurrection. He wasn't made more sinless. He simply arrived at the goal of his life, which was to purchase our salvation, to enter into the presence of the Father, to sit down as our high priest, and there to intercede on our behalf. All right? So the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope, better being one of our key words in the book, used 13 times. It means superior in every way. A better hope through which we draw near to God. That veil is gone. We're going to see more about it in chapter 10. But that veil is gone. The door is open. As it were, God stands there with open arms to welcome His children at any time that we have need. What a marvelous thought that is. You know, I grew up under a sense of my own sinfulness that was very strong. As a little child of five, six, seven, I knew I was a bad kid and I knew I was going to die and go to hell. And until I was 15 years old, that was the conviction of my life. I lived in fear of death. When I came to Christ, that fear was taken away because I realized that He had paid the penalty in full and the first time I ever heard the gospel explained in a little country church, uh, Cumberland Bible Church, Nan's been there down on the banks of the Walnut River, and this little tiny church with this fiery evangelistic pastor, and he explained the gospel to me, and I remember sitting there at 15 years old thinking, I have never heard this in my life. I went to Sunday school all the time as a kid. And the impression I got was good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and I knew where I was headed. And I remember thinking in my mind, only God could do something like that. To send his own son to pay the penalty to set us free from condemnation. So the author here is telling us that we have a better hope. And it was a hope that the law could never accomplish. Uh, you'll remember Romans 8, 3, where Paul says, what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He judged sin in the flesh. What the law could not do, Christ did. That's the thought we want to get. Now verse 20 to 28 we get into the greater priest offering the greater covenant. And he's going to focus here on the covenant. And I'll try to move through it fairly quick because I'd like us to at least uh, get a little way into Hebrews chapter 8. Let me read for you the first, uh, well, from verse 20 to 24. Inasmuch as he, referring to Jesus Christ, was not made a priest without an oath, uh, he just built a case for us back there in chapter 6 that God gave an oath to Abraham, didn't he? Why did he give the oath? So that both by his promise and his oath, there would be no question that it was going to be fulfilled. If God takes an oath on himself, I mean, he doesn't even have to take an oath, does he? He cannot lie. 
But when he gives a promise and then takes an oath in addition, why does he do it? He's trying to show us in every way he can, this is certain, this is sure, this is secure. It is something that you will never, ever lose. So my point being, if he made an oath to Abraham back in Hebrews 6, how much more potent, powerful, certain, secure is the oath that he makes with his own son? God the Father took an oath to God the Son. And that oath was on our behalf. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, and then a little parenthesis, for they have become priests without an oath, meaning the Levitical priesthood. They didn't have an oath. But he, with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When David penned these words in Psalm 110, every Jewish believer should have known the Levitical priesthood was about to be set aside. Of course, it didn't come for a thousand years. You know, we get in a hurry. Why doesn't God hurry up and do something? I was hoping for the rapture on the 5th because it was Pentecost. I told the people in the church I didn't want to be here and I was hoping you wouldn't be here. So I was hoping we'd be gone. Why does he delay? Well, he's not delaying. Everything's happening like clockwork. And at the perfect moment, he'll come. So when David spoke a thousand years before Christ, a thousand years in the sight of God is what? It's just a, just a day. Just a day. Verse 22, by so much more, you'll remember much more is one of Paul's uh, rhetorical devices by which he emphasizes a point. If you want to go back to Romans 5, you see much more, much more, much more again and again and again. By so much more, Jesus has become the surety or the guarantor of a better covenant. What better covenant? The new covenant. Remember that there are Two things that told the people in the Old Testament that sooner or later the Old Covenant would pass away. Actually, four things. I pick out two and then my mind starts and, and clicking and columns start coming up. I'll, I'll give the two. Psalm 110 verse 4, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jeremiah 31, the promise of the New Covenant. They should have known the, the day's coming that this system is going to pass away. But this is why Jesus constantly spoke to the people of his generation. Why do you hang on to the old wine? You can't put old wine in new wineskins. If you try it, the wineskins will burst and you lose both the wine and the wineskin. You have to put new wine in new wineskins. He was contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. All right? So, verse 23 goes on to say, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Obviously, everyone lives the duration of their life and they die. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So here again is another contrast. Many, many, many priests over 1,400, 1,500 years 
dying being replaced, dying being replaced. Here we have now in Christ a priest whose priesthood will never, ever change. What does this give to you and I? He calls it surety, guarantee, or a basis for confidence. The word hope comes in here. Earlier he said we have a better hope. Could I just remind you that every time you see the word hope in the Bible, I want you to think absolute assurance. It's not hope the way we talk about hope. Nan and I were talking, it's cloudy outside, it looks like maybe we're starting the buildup of the monsoon, which I can't wait for. Mm -hmm. It's hot and dusty and dry, I want to see some rain. And I say, I hope that this is the beginning of the buildup. I don't know. I have no assurance because if you'll remember a couple of years ago, we had a buildup, one little piddly rain, and it quit. Right? No assurance, no confidence. But when the Bible talks about the hope, speaking of the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, and it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's not talking about pie in the sky. He's not talking about, you know, wishful thinking. He's talking about we have the absolute assurance that he is coming back. Now think about this. What if we die before he comes back? We just got there in advance. We didn't miss out. We got a personal entree into the presence of Jesus Christ. And one day, very shortly, and I have some very dear friends and some relatives that are on their final path through the valley of the shadow, and sometime fairly soon, they're going to enter into the Lord's presence. Sure, I'll miss them, but you know what? They won't miss me. <laughs> they are not going to be worrying about old Gene that got left behind. Maybe in a moment of saying, well, too bad, I'm here and he's not. Right? Because once we pass into the presence of the Lord, the glory and the majesty and the beauty, and we're going to be so overwhelmed, we're not going to be worrying about what was left behind. Therefore, verse 25 is important. You remember what I told you about therefore? How many therefores do we have in Hebrews? Holly, do you remember? I think 13. Whenever you see therefore, what the author does, and this is a very typical technique, they build an argument, build an argument. It's like putting blocks in place and building and building and building, and you get everything built up, and then you put the capstone, or we could say the cherry on top. And that's always the therefore. Therefore is wrapping up everything we've said up to this point and coming to a very important conclusion. And it's one of the reasons why when we see the word therefore, we should think, what's he concluding? What's, what's he giving as the bottom line, as it were? Well, here it comes. Therefore, you want a strong bottom line? Here it is. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know why your salvation is secure? Because Christ lives. 
That's why. He lives. And what does He live for? He lives to make intercession on your behalf. I want to share a little idea with you that maybe you had never thought of. In that psalm, which has the oath, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is verse 4 in Psalm 110. Does anyone remember the first verse? What's the first verse of Psalm 110? Turn back to it. Just quickly. says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. There you go. The Lord said to my Lord, you'll remember Jesus used this in contending with the Pharisees. Who is Christ's son? Well, they said he's the son of David. He said, well, then how does David call him Lord? Mm -hmm. The point he was making, of course, is that he's God, Right? The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. When did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God? When he ascended into his presence. And how long is he going to sit? Till his enemies are made his footstool. Who's making his enemies his footstool? We are. That's our role right now. Conquering the forces of darkness, following the plan of God, preaching the gospel, winning people, bringing people out of the darkness into the light of Christ. And in doing so, we are breaking the power of the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelievers lest they should see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ and be saved, right? Weak and frail as we are, that's the role that we're playing. That's the verse that the Jehovah Witness used to say, well, how can he be talking to his God when he's here? That's the argument they have is that verse, and that first verse in 1-10. Yeah. Well, they don't want to see. <laughs> you can go round and round and round. Right. They don't want to see. Yeah. But here's my point. Once he sat down, will he ever stand up? Before his enemies are made his footstool? Yes. When will he stand up? At Stephen's stone. You ready for this? You know what the position of a judge is? Seated. Seated. You know what the position of an advocate is? Standing. Standing. Why did Jesus stand when Stephen was dying? Stephen said, hold not this against them, and then receive my spirit. And he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the majesty on why. Why? Because now he's acting as his advocate. And he will always be your advocate because no matter what charge Satan may bring against you, no matter your faults, your flaws, your failings, whenever Satan calls your name, I had a pastor friend who did a whole series called When Satan Calls Your Name. And he was using Job as an example. And when Satan calls your name in heaven, you're going to go through some tests and trial. But the point is this. Christ is there as an advocate, and he always wins his cases. Okay? This is the point our 
author wants us to get. For such a priest, verse 26, is fitting for us. The word fitting actually means to be suitable. Uh, By the way, I should have said, when he talks about him saving to the uttermost, the idea of the uttermost means not only for eternal salvation, but for our needs day by day. He delivers us moment by moment, day by day, as he intercedes for us. Not only eternal life, but abundant life is in view. For such a high priest is suitable for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, and who does not need daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law, verse 28, appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which we see down in verse 21, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Once again, perfected being he has arrived at the goal of his incarnation. The goal of becoming a man was to be a glorified man in the presence of God advocating on our behalf. As John says in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for what? The sins of the entire world. You want me to throw something out that'll maybe jangle your mind a little bit? Do you know why unbelievers go to hell? They do not go to hell because of their sins. Because their sins were paid. They go to hell because of unbelief. All of this stuff about when you go to heaven as an unbeliever, you're going to see a screen and God's going to show all your sins. No. Those sins were paid. The problem is they rejected the payment. And that's why John tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him shall be saved. He who believes not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Can you imagine the anguish of standing in the presence of the glorified Christ and knowing that He paid the penalty for all your sins and all you had to do was receive Him as your Savior and you wouldn't do it? You can talk about the darkness of hell. You can talk about the flames of hell. You can talk about the isolation of hell. You can talk about whatever you want. To me, the worst hell is knowing All I had to do was take that one step of faith. And I refused to do it. All right. Now, we're getting very close. Uh, On your uh, sheet, I think on page 44, I break down these five ways in which Christ is suitable for us. So you can read through those and get a little more information. And also, uh, you'll get some uh, cross-references that you can check out. Um, and also I cover the six uh, ways that he uh, serves us as high priest. I'm going to skip over that because I want to get into at least touching on chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. 
This is the main point of the things that we are saying. The word here comes from kifale. Kifale means the head. It's very interesting. The Bible uses head in different ways. For example, it uses head of our literal head. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, he talks about the head and the body. But of course, he's using that for a greater analogy, which is Christ being head in authority over the church. In Ephesians 5, he uses head for the position of the husband in relationship to the wife. And there again, the idea of authority and the idea of leadership is there. Here, he says the main point, kephali, and here it means the climax, the pinnacle, uh, or as we have it translated, the main point refers to the argument that runs all the way through the book. The main point that we have made of all the different points that we have seen, and there's a lot of them, we have such a high priest, such meaning such a unique kind, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Remember when Moses made the tabernacle, what God told him? See that you're going to run into this in the next chapter. See that you make everything according to the copy that was shown to you on the mountain. When we look at the tabernacle or later the temple, what are we seeing? We're seeing an imitation of something that exists in heaven. And I promise you, as grand as Herod's temple was, and we can see the ruins of it, and the ruins are impressive. To have seen it when it stood, the, the eaves of the buildings were lined with gold when the sun came up over the east, across the Jordan, and it hit the gold of the temple. People stood in awe. The stories tell us that when Alexander was out trying to conquer the world, he came up on a mountaintop and saw Jerusalem in the early morning sun and looked at it and he said, this place is too glorious to destroy. Mm. How glorious it must have been. What must it be like in the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle? But I want to leave you with this. The tabernacle type, the tabernacle was, of course, looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it looked like this. And there was a brazen altar. We were singing about it a little earlier, only the paper said the brain altar. <laughs> so here's the brazen altar, and here's the labor. Can you guys see this? Here's the, here's the altar. Over here we have the lampstand. Can you see that? There's the lampstand. Is the smell of this getting to you? It is pretty strong. I can't change it. Over here, we have the table of showbread. Flat, round cakes stacked up. How many of them were there? Twelve, why? Twelve tribes. Plenty of bread for everyone. Oh, I've gotten away from myself here. Let's shorten these up just a little bit. 
because we have to save a place for the Holy of Holies. So there's our lampstand, table of showbread, a little altar here. It was the altar of incense, the veil, the Ark of the Covenant with the angels kneeling, their wings shattered over the mercy seat inside the Ark of the Covenant. What was there? Man. Aaron's rod that budded, tables of stone that were broken, the bowl of men. Why were they there? Three symbols of three times Israel failed. Pictures of sin. The angels looking down into the mercy seat, a picture of the righteousness and the holiness of God, looking down to the mercy seat where the blood was placed so that the sins were hid from sight. Called propitiation. In fact, in the next chapter, Hebrews 9, uh, 4 or 5, he talks about the mercy seat and the word he uses for mercy seat is propitiation. Here's what I want us to see. Well, I don't even have to ask you to write it down. Have you got page 47 open? Let's just walk through it. I make it so easy for you guys. <laughs> I don't have to write anymore. You won't have to smell this anymore. <laughs> the brazen altar. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The labor of cleansing, a picture of sanctification by faith in Christ. Once we come through the sacrifice, once we receive Christ as Savior, what happens to us? We are sanctified, set apart, purified for God's service. So the labor of cleansing. The lampstand, a picture of Christ as the light of the world. Seven lamps, picture of what? Perfection. I am the light of the world, Jesus said to the woman taken in the act of adultery in John 8, 12. The showbread, a picture of Christ, the bread of life. Twelve loaves, twelve tribes. The idea being what? There's plenty for all. Whosoever will may come is always the message of the scripture. No one is excluded. The altar of incense is a picture of Christ, our propitiation. And Romans 3.25, Ephesians 5.2 and 1 John 2.2. I just mentioned uh, 1 John 2.2. Uh, our propitiation, or if you will, the sweet-smelling aroma. Then we have the veil, a picture of the body of Christ. That'll come up in Hebrews 10.20. His body was broken, the veil was torn, opening for us the door into God's presence. And there we have the ark and the mercy seat, a picture of Christ in present session. You want me to wrap all this up for you in a theatrical way? Oh, not, that, yes. not that I'm going to get theatrical. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? A great Bible lesson. A great Bible lesson. You have displaced people. You've got Dorothy, you've got the Tin Man, you've got the Scarecrow, and you've got the Lion, the Cowardly Lion. All of them want something. So where do they go to find what they want? They go to the Wizard of Oz. And when they come in, they see on this screen, this face, and all this clanging and banging and <coughs> trumpets and 
terrifying noise and they're, they're terrified. And to find what they want, what does the wizard do? He sends them on a quest. And you know what? As they're in the process of doing what they were told to do, you know what they find? Dorothy finds a home and her three friends. The tin man finds a heart. And if you watch it again, you'll notice he's always the one showing compassion. The scarecrow starts figuring things out. And the cowardly lion, in spite of his cowardliness, becomes bold. When they come back to the Wizard of Oz, what do they find? Not a terrifying figure, a man. Think of the Holy of Holies in heaven and think of Christ as that one that once seemed so frightening and so terrifying, but when we come to Him in faith and we set out on the path that God sets for us, what do we find? A suitable, faithful, compassionate high priest. How about that? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the depth of his humility, for the greatness of his sacrifice, for the earnestness of his willingness to enter in on our behalf, interceding for us, acting as our defense attorney, our advocate, the propitiation for all our sins. Father, I pray that as we continue to work our way through this marvelous book, these truths will find a home in our heart. And I pray that we will realize that the Christian life is not just sitting at the cross and waiting for Jesus to come. We have a mission. We have been given a task to perform. Each of us as a child of God is uniquely spiritually gifted to play a part. We don't have to try to be a big name. We don't have to try to be known. We don't have to try to have anyone recognize us. We just need to be faithful in the place that you put us, in our own little sphere of influence and our own little mission field. Help us, Father, to be faithful where you've placed us because we know one day, small as the task may be, as little as we think we might contribute, to stand in his presence and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, will be worth anything that we've gone through in this life. Bless each and every one of us to fulfill your plan and purpose, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.